All right. Well, again, good morning, and we're back in the book of Revelation. So let's go ahead and make our way to Revelation chapter 10. And as you're there, also kind of mark, if you will, for a moment, Revelation 21. 21. We're going to do all 11 chapters this morning. Years ago, I worked with an older gentleman who really was an avid book reader. He loved to read books. But one day at lunch, I discovered that he had a very unique way of selecting books, either at his public library or at the bookstore. Of course, the first thing that he evaluated was the cover of the book. If the cover interested him, then he would take a little bit more time looking and perusing at the book. But then, before he checked it out and before he purchased it, he would read a portion of the last chapter of the book to see how it ended and then decide if he wanted to read the whole entire thing. Now, he wasn't much of a moviegoer, but there came a time when one of his uh, favorite stories came out in a movie. And he went and he was all excited about going to the theater that Friday. And on Monday, I caught up with him. I worked right next to him. My desk was right next to his. And uh, he used to call me Hagar. I don't know how he got Hagar, the horrible, from the cartoon character. That was my nickname. Uh, And I was one of his favorite people there. Um, And he came in and I, I said, hey, you know, Ron, how was the movie? You know, you really wanted to see that movie. How was it? He goes, I didn't like it at all. I go, why not? He goes, well, the way they structured it, they told me the ending of the movie at the very beginning, and then they went back. And I'm like, but that's the way you check out books. And he goes, that's different. I'm like, really? Really, that's different? How often would we like to know the end of the story before we get into the entirety of the story? If we were simply to look at the book of Revelation through the lens of Revelation 21, which I'd like to look at that with you for a moment, you'd be like, hey, that sounds great. In Revelation 21, starting in verse 1, John writes, he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. And then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the heavens saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And notice with me in verse 4. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying. There shall be no more pain, (coughs) for the former things have passed away. And then he who sat on the throne said, (coughs) Excuse me, behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these things are faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Hey, all right. Sounds good. The end of all injustice. The end of all sorrow. The end of all sadness. The end of all sin. The end of all death. Sounds great, right? The problem is that's how it ends. It's like hearing those words at the end of a story, and they lived happily ever after. But you almost know by experience that we didn't get there automatically. As we find ourselves this morning in the 10th chapter of Revelation, we are now three and a half years into what is known as the seven-year tribulation period. This is a very hard time upon the earth. It is a time that God allows for his wrath to be poured upon the earth. And as we come to this parathetical position in Scripture, meaning God now gives us a little bit of commentary, John gives us a little bit of background, we find a description of one who's described as an angel carrying a very, very small book. 
And in the Greek language and in ancient literature, when such contrasts are given between large and small, it's meant to be noticed. It's meant to be seen. There's, uh, there's something there to be discovered. And in that contrast, the best way I could contrast that for you is something that I've been seeing lately as I've been out and about walking and trying to get some exercise each and every day. But I've noticed that lately there's a lot of people walking dogs. Have you noticed that? I don't know, the pandemic, I think everybody ran out and got a bog, dog. Bog. Everybody ran out and got a dog. Now, some of those dogs have been returned, I've heard. But... There's a lot of dogs out there. And one of the things that really confuses me, it really confuses me. As I'm walking along and I see this guy, 6'5", six, 6'7", six, big guy, and he looks to be walking something that appears to be a rat. It's this little, tiny, tiny dog. And, you know, it's even worse when it has a pink leash, a little sweater, and you're like, oh my goodness, the worst I ever saw was a big guy pushing what I thought was his child in a stroller. And then as I got closer, I was like, oh, he looks just like you. It was a dog, you know. It's just like, oh my goodness, our society's gone nuts. But that contrast strikes you. You think, oh, it's got to be his wife's dog or his girlfriend, and she's mad at him this week, and so he's trying to get on her good side. This contrast is meant to draw our attention in, that the one who is handling this small book is one of authority. He is one that has been either given a commission by God directly, or this figure is Jesus himself. And within this small book, we find what appears to be a letter instructions, God's word, the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, the coming judgment that was announced all the way back in the books of Daniel and the books of Ezekiel, coming now upon the earth. So we pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 10. Please turn there with me. Notice with me. And I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun, and his feet like the pillars of fire. He had a little book opened in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and cried with a loud voice, as when a lion roars. And when he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Seal up the things which, I, which the seven thunders had uttered, and do not write them. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven. And swore by him who lives forever and ever, who has created the heavens and the, earth and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be no delay no longer. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mysteries of God would be finished as he declared to his servants the prophets." The identity of this individual has been a source of debate since the very beginning. Either this is just another angel, a mighty angel, that we discover here as we find that throughout the book of Revelation, angels and demons are mentioned often. As Christians, I believe that we need to embrace the idea that there are heavenly angels. And these angels are messengers of God. They are there to serve God and to serve God's people. And also, therefore, in conjunction with that, I also have to embrace the literal understanding of demons, which began as angels but then fell from their rightful place 
with Satan at his fall. Now, as we see here in our text this morning, we find that this angel has been given a little book. But before we get to that little book, let's first look at the description of this angel, which causes some to believe that this is none other than Jesus Christ. Well, it says angel there, and you're right, it does. That word simply means messenger. But we also know that in the Old Testament, there are Old Testament appearances of Jesus Christ called Theophanies, or it could be Christophany if it is an Old Te- a New Testament appearance of Christ. I had a lot of coffee this morning, so this should be interesting. Uh, a New Testament appearance of Christ after his resurrection and his ascension back into heaven. So as we look at this together, first let us notice the description that is given. And I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. I want to stop there for a moment and address an issue that we are finding ourselves confronted with today. When individuals uh, access or look to gain knowledge from such credible sources such as YouTube and TikTok, Okay, I say that tongue-in-cheek. I am being as sarcastic as I possibly can and still retain my salvation. No. These things are horrific. But what we are seeing lately is a direct assault on the Bible through a process of what is called eisegesis. Eisegesis is the process of reading our current cultural aspects into ancient text. Now, it can be the Bible or any ancient text. Now, what we believe is that we should be learning from the Bible. It is not my job to bring our culture into the Bible and define the words of the Bible by our culture. It is my job to take you back into the ancient world and look at the words defined in their culture the way they understood it. Does that make sense? And this is so important. Because we have these influencers now, if you will, influencing people for demonic uh, reasons and also in demonic ways, saying that the Bible completely supports the ideologies that are currently being embraced today. For example, we see here in our text, very clearly written, that the angel, this mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud and had a rainbow, was on his head. Oh, he had a rainbow on his head, so he must be associated with the, the LGBTQ community, right? Must be. See, the rainbow indicates it. Do you have any any thought to the idea, or any, is there any credence to the idea that the ancient people of the time of John the Apostle, when they read the word rainbow here, they associated it with a cultural uh, icon today? No, that's silly, right? It's ridiculous. I wasted 10 minutes of my life that I'll never get back watching an individual, a young lady, explain to me why Joseph of the Old Testament was transgender because he wore a coat of many colors. I'm like, Lord, just take me home now. This is ridiculous. That David and Jonathan were lovers. What? Because they were friends? That they hung out with one another? you would be absolutely surprised to find out how many videos are out there telling young people today who would watch them that the Bible is in complete support of the woke ideology of today by eisegesis-ing into the scriptures our cultural norms of today. We must be very careful. Obviously, this is not what John had in mind. Do we all agree with that? This was farthest from John. John couldn't even comprehend that. John says, man, you're worried about what the rainbow symbolizes and you don't know male from female? you got bigger problems. For God says, I have made male and female. That settles the argument for me right there, okay? That being said, 
as they try to influence people away from the authentic and the original meaning of the scriptures, they are undermining the gospel itself by doing so that is contained within the scriptures. But this description does point us in a direction to make us consider the identity of this angel. Notice with me, if you will, as we continue on, clothed with a cloud and, his, and a rainbow was on his head, his face was like the sun, his feet were like pillars of fire, and he had a little book open in his hand. Now notice with me, if you will, that these descriptions are very similar to the descriptions that we find of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. And I'll talk about that more in just a minute. But knowing about angels as a Christian is very important. Because the Bible talks heavily about angels. Angels in the Bible have always served God. They were created beings by God. They are known for their integrity, goodwill, and obedience. Angels have often interacted with the people of God throughout the Bible, and sometimes without the people even knowing that they were interacting with an angel. They watch over God's people from Israel to the church. They watched over the birth of Jesus Christ. They're here at the end of all things. They are known by many names, such as cherubim and seraphim, the types of angels that they are. And three names are given in in relation to angels such as Michael, Gabriel, and Satan himself. And yet we still know that Satan fell as an angel and took one-third of the angels with him, who now we know to be demons. Angelology is a study, a theological study of the Bible. And when we understand the roles of angels, we are greatly comforted by the knowledge of those roles. But yet, one of the greatest questions that I always get concerning angels is this, and I think you know what's coming next. Do we have guardian angels? And I think this really became a source of discussion after the movie A Wonderful Life came out, where George Bailey met his guardian angel named Clarence. Now, you might think that's funny until you hear about mine. As growing up as a young Christian, I am convinced that my guardian angel was called Fred. Fred. Because everywhere I went, I would turn around and there would be Fred. He actually introduced himself to me one time. I was in downtown Chicago. I turned around. There's Fred. I'm driving in Milwaukee, and as I'm driving through the city of Milwaukee, I look on the sidewalk, and guess who's there? Fred. Okay? I'm up in Twin Lakes, Wisconsin, uh, water skiing with my friends. Guess who's in the boat next to us? Fred. Okay? He was about 6'2". He weighed about 100 pounds, and he had an afro. Yes, that would be the guardian angel that God gives me, named Fred. But lately, Dean and I believe that God has assigned us a new guardian angel. Dean and I love to grab some food and go out to the forest preserve for picnics. We love it. We have this little spot that we go to. We enjoy each other's company. We talk for hours and so forth, sometimes even getting kicked out by the forest police, you know. The forest preserve is closing. Not you two again. Don't make me handcuff you, Pastor Eric. Let's get, let's get in your car and get out of here. But as we are sitting there enjoying our dinner, each and every night, we see the same person go by on the walking path next to our picnic table. And first, we just kind of laughed at it, but then we started getting a little concerned because it was every single time. And after a while, we knew when he was about to pass. For our new guardian angel appears to like rollerblades, and they light up as he goes by. And we hear him coming from a mile away, not because of the sound of a trumpet, but because he likes Middle Eastern disco music. It's just like Dina said, that's our new guardian angel. I said, I told you, I went from Fred to him. But the Bible does talk about angels in the role of watching over us. 
In Psalm 91, 11 through 12, for he shall give his angels charge over you. Of course, he's speaking of Jesus. To keep you in all of your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. Or in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. And they, not all, and they, not all ministering spirits, sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation. So it does look as if God sets angels over us. Now, is your angel named Fred? Was that really them? Well, I, I don't know that. But I do know that angels care for God's people. And in the description of God, we see that this angel, described in a very specific way, notice with me in verse 2, he had a little book open in his hand. Now, what was this little book? Well, this little book, I believe, was mentioned earlier in the Bible. But concerning the description that is given, I don't want to quickly surpass that it isn't Christ himself. Notice with me in Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 16. We know that there's a rainbow over the throne of God, Revelation 4, 3. But in Revelation 1, 12 through 16, notice the similarities in the description. And then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the seven golden lampstands, one like the Son of Man, a term for the Messiah coined in the Old Testament, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about his chest with a golden band. His head and hair were light, white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass as it refines in a furnace. And his voice, the sound of his voice of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like that of the, shining, of the sun shining in its strength. Here we'll notice in verse 3, notice that he cried with a loud voice, as when a lion roars, John states. Well, in Hosea 11.10, it talks about God roaring in the same way. Then they shall walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. And when he roars, then his son shall come trembling from the west. Or in Joel 3.16, the Lord also will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. So there is a possibility that this is none other than Jesus himself. What's really interesting about that idea is that when you come to uh, Revelation 11 verse 3, talking and describing the two witnesses that we'll introduce you to next week, notice that this same individual says, and I will give power to my two witnesses. It is highly probable that this angel is Jesus himself carrying this small book. Now, this book has, again, been debated about its identity. For it is the same Greek word that is used earlier in Revelation to describe the scroll that Jesus took from the hand of God the Father from his throne in Revelation 5. But there's a nuance to this. The Greek word here at this verse ends with the letters I-A-N, which means it's a small book in comparison to the scroll in which he took out of the Father's hand in Revelation chapter 5. So what does that mean? Well, it could mean one of two things. Number one, it is completely different from the scroll that he took out of the Father's hand, or it could be a portion a portion of the scroll in which he took out of the Father's hand. Like one chapter, meaning a very precise portion of it. And it being open 
means that the events that are recorded in it that we see here were from the prophets of old in the Old Testament in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and other places, Daniel. They talked about the return of God to this earth in his second coming. They talked about the establishment of his kingdom over everything. And I believe that's what we're seeing here. That Jesus is holding open the portion of the scroll that would indicate the events that still yet need to take place between the three and a half year period and the end of the seven year period. Aren't you glad you ate your uh, spinach before you got here this morning? Because we're really digging into it today. However, though, this book is not new to us. Notice with me, if you will, it should be on the screen behind us. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 4. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 4. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book. This is the Hebrew equivalent of the word used here in Greek. Until the time of the end. And many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Meaning that Daniel had possession of this book that is now open and is now being fulfilled here in the book of Revelation. As we moved on a little farther in Daniel 12, verses 9 through 11, and he said, Go your way, Daniel, this is God speaking to him, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Many shall be purified, made white, and refined, but the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand from the time that the daily sacrifices are taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Now, what is he talking about here? He's talking about a prophecy that was given in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. Then Daniel, then he, uh, Daniel writes, shall confirm, this is the Antichrist that he is speaking of, with many for one week, that is a one week, a seven-year period of time. But in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and to offering, and on the wings of abomination shall be one who makes desolate even until the consummation and determined, and which is determined is poured out on the desolate. So what is he talking about here? The Bible tells us that the Antichrist, when he first arrives on the world scene, in Revelation chapter 6, the rider of the white horse with the crown given to him and the bow and arrow in which he carries, this is symbolic of the Antichrist. For the first three and a half years that the Antichrist is there, he will operate in a uh, manner of peace. He will answer some of the world's deepest questions. He will answer some of the deepest questions that individuals have about themselves. He will do signs and wonders to awe the entire world. But then as time goes on, he will also show his slight aggressions by raising military uh, that will oppose anyone who resists him. He will go after the church. God's people, those who are here during the tribulation period. But at the three and a half year mark, halfway through this seven year period, something's going to happen, Zechariah tells us, that it's going to look as if he is mortally wounded. He will, there will be an assassination, I know this is heavy stuff, man, assassination attempt upon his life. He will appear to be dead for three days and then at that moment, Satan himself enters him and on the third day rises again. I think we've seen this before, haven't we? Remember, Satan doesn't create, he counterfeits. Now you can imagine the whole world is going to be at awe about this. They're going to be like, oh my word. This has to be some divine figure that we need to embrace and to follow. And they will follow him blindly until a moment in time comes in Revelation 13 
where he will require everyone to receive a mark on their forehead or on their hand, and without it they cannot buy and sell. Without it they will be excluded from all of society's activities, and without it they will be hunted down and persecuted. Many, of course, resulting in execution by beheading. Does the Bible say this? Yes, it does. So I'm just giving you a little forecast of where we're going. And now is the time. As Ezekiel was discussing with God this little book, notice what Ezekiel said in Ezekiel 2, 8 through chapter 3, verse 3. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. Now when I looked, there was a hand stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And then he spread it before me, and there was writing on the inside and on the outside. And written on it were lamentations and mournings and woe. Moreover, he said to me, son of man, eat what you find. Now we'll talk about what all this means. No, you don't have to go home and devour your paper Bible. Son of man, eat what you find, eat the, the scroll, and go and speak to the house of Israel. So Ezekiel says, I opened my mouth, and he caused me to eat the scroll. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly and feed your stomach with the scroll that I give you. So I ate, and it was like honey in sweetness to me. Now keep that in mind. Because now, John is seeing and witnessing who most likely is Christ himself with the book now open, meaning the events of it are now to be poured out and fulfilled upon the earth. And notice with me in verse 4. Now when seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered, and do not write them. Whatever John heard at this moment, God still wanted to conceal. This is another warning I'm going to give you. You will find those in social media who want to tell you that God has supernaturally revealed to them such secrets as what the, thundering, the seven thunderings had said. Red flag. Okay? Because the Bible tells us that prophecy is, is of no personal or secret interpretation. Meaning that if someone states that God had spoken to them and revealed this to them, watch out, be careful. Because God wants us all to know what He is doing. That's why He gave us His Word. Right before His death, He said of His disciples, I no longer call you My disciples, now I call you My friends, and all that the Father is doing, I now tell you. He wants you to be in the loop. He doesn't want you to be excluded from knowing what He is doing. And for whatever reason, God sovereignly decided that we are not to know and to hear what these seven thunderings had said. Now, if you're like me, that's like hearing that someone has a secret. And as soon as someone has a secret, you just become all curious and interested, right? When my daughter was growing up and I would whisper in Dina's ear a secret, she'd be like, what about me? What about me? Because right away she wanted to know. She wanted to be part of it. And the worst thing that you could tell a little kid is, I have a secret. They are going to hound you until the return of Jesus Christ of what that secret is. But for whatever reason, God has chosen not to reveal specifically what was said at this moment in time. As the book was sealed earlier and then revealed here, so these thunderings are. We don't know what they said, so to speculate would be useless. But, in verse 5, then the angel who I saw standing on the sea and on the land, which means he stands and reigns over the whole earth, raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him, now notice here, what was absolutely prohibited for man to do, he does, because I believe it's most likely Jesus here, 
who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all things that are in it, the earth and all things that are in it, and the sea and all things that are in it, that know that there should be no delay longer or no delay no longer. Now is the time. Now is the time. The time has come. All the prophecies, the 600-some prophecies of the Old Testament concerning the last days, it's now time to open them and to allow them to be fulfilled. This is it. This is the announcement. This is the prelude to everything that's going to take place going forward. Whatever's written in that book is going to take place, and we are going to read it as we go and see those events unfold upon the earth as we begin with the blast of the seventh trumpet in Revelation chapter uh, 11. But that being said, the delay is no longer but in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel when he is about to sound the mysteries of God would be finished as he declared to his servants the prophets. Let me say something here about God. One of the aspects about God that I still wrestle with after 35 years of walking with him is his long-suffering. I, 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 I can't comprehend it. My finite mind cannot comprehend the long-suffering of God. Now, some people look at the long-suffering of God and conclude that God isn't really there, he doesn't really care, and he's never going to come back. Peter tells us that. But the Bible also says, Peter also tells us that that long-suffering is opportunity. It's an opportunity to get right with God. It's an opportunity to come to him and to be spared from this period of time upon the earth. It's a moment of pause before the storm. It's a moment of grace where God's long-suffering is there inviting you to come to Him. Do you know Jesus? If something were to happen and you were to die this evening, hopefully you won't. But tomorrow, today is, I'm sorry, tomorrow is promised to no one, the Bible says. If you have any doubt about that today, you are in the right place. God has brought you here for an appointment such as this. This is your appointment with God to consider that question. If you are not 100% sure that if something were to happen, that you would simply leave this world and enter into heaven, today you can be 100% sure before you leave. And I'm not trying to sell you something. It's something I'm offering you free. It's something that was offered to each and every one of us who follows Christ, and all we simply did was receive it. And now, because of that, because of that salvation, and many people don't know what we are being saved from, but the Bible tells us that what we are being saved from is the wrath of God, because the wrath of God was poured out upon Jesus on our behalf. In the hours of darkness that he hung there on the cross, the wrath of God was being poured upon his shoulders and that anyone who believes in him is then umbrellaed by that beautiful promise, umbrellaed by that hope, by that care. And you simply have to believe by faith. But you have to make the decision to receive Christ into your life. You're not a Christian because your family was Christian. God has no grandkids. You're not a Christian because you simply come to church each and every Sunday. Standing in a garage doesn't make you a car. It means that you personally have to decide. But let me tell you this. It was God who brought you here today. He led you here to hear this because he loves you more than you can imagine. And because of that love, he says, I'd like to spare you from all that is about to happen upon the earth if you simply would believe in my son. Now, it's not only the sparing of the wrath of God that we enjoy as Christians. The Bible says we now for the first time have a relationship that we've never known or uh, could ever think that we could obtain through Christ with God. So many are looking for relationship today. 
They are desperate for relationship. And they go from one person, one friend after another, looking for that to be satisfied within that relationship. And they keep falling short each and every time. Here's why, folks. It's because the only person that can fill that void is God. God is the ultimate relationship. We're not talking about religion here. We're talking about a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. You can have one today by receiving Him as your Savior. But not only is that relationship, then you understand what unconditional love is. And then you understand that God can give you a peace that surpasses all understanding to guard your heart and mind in times of difficulty. All the promises of God become yes, the Bible tells us. Do you know that there are over 3,000 promises of God made to His people throughout the Bible? And they are yes to you and I. For example, my God shall supply all of my needs. Not our wants. I've tried that. doesn't work. Our needs. God says it's no, it's no need for us to worry about the things that we are in need of. He says, because I know what you're in need of before you ever ask, and I will provide it for you. And here's the, the last great aspect of the new relationship that we can have with God through Christ, is that he begins a new work in us. It's a redo. It's a restart. And he begins to work in our life, changing us from the inside out. And we shed those things that kept us in bondage and truly enjoying life. Instead of living, most people are just surviving today. But the abundant life that we can have in Christ is, can be yours today through Jesus. Just believe in him. And all of this you shall be spared of. As the angel said here, uh, all of this that's in this book was written from time past. If God says he's going to do it, he's going to do it, 100%. You can take that to the bank. If he says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. Now we get to an interesting part of our text in closing. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So I went to the angel and said to him, give me the little book. I don't know if I'd be so quick to do that, right? Um, can, I, can, I, can I have the book, book, please? That one? Yeah, it's okay. Okay, oh, I don't want, is it good? Okay, thank you. It's my interpretation in the Eric Standard Version. Who stands on the sea, and so I went up and, the, and, the, and said to him, give me the little book. And he said to me, notice here, take and eat it. And it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey to your mouth. Now, what does this all mean? Ezekiel was given that same instruction. One wrote this way. Dr. Warren Worsby, Professor Worsby, wrote it this way. He said, the Bible is either going to be a blessing to you or a burden to you. It's either going to be a blessing or a burden. To those of us who are in Christ, the Bible is one of the greatest blessings that we have. But to those who do, are outside of Christ, who don't have that relationship with Him, who are far from Him, the Bible is a burden because it talks of their personal judgment before God. And a lot of people have a really hard time with that concept. But let me ask you a, a question. Can there be true justice in the world without accountability? You know, we've seen in our nation over the last year, so many things go undealt with, haven't we? When lies are exposed, when corruption is exposed, it doesn't appear that we're holding anyone accountable anymore. Do you believe that that's going to deter things or just increase things? Give them a, more uh, of a boldness going forward. God cannot be the fair and just God if he doesn't hold people accountable. Well, you may say, that doesn't sound very loving to me. Hey, stop right there. Let me ask you another question. How much more does God have to do to save you, to give you a way out, a way of escape? He came and was brutally handled by his own creation. He was tortured, he was mocked, he was ridiculed, and he was crucified 
on your behalf. What more could God have done for you to show you his love towards you? Showing you love by simply letting you go is not love at all. And I think a lot of parents are finding that out today, right? Parents who desired to be more of a friend to their children to their, than their parent. And then when they get older, the children get older and they are completely entitled and rebellious and so forth, the parents say, I don't know what happened. Well, maybe your friendship didn't produce what your parenting should have. And that parenting begins with holding your kids accountable, right? We live in a society now that, are, that is trying to convince us that children as young as five and six and sometimes younger can make life-altering decisions. When I was five years old, I wanted to be a pelican. I am so glad my dad didn't rush me to the hospital and say, he wants to be a pelican. What kind of beaks do you have in stock? Really? But we're told that we need to affirm these people, these children. Maybe we just need to say no to them and say, no, up, slow down. I'll never forget when I wanted to get a tattoo. My dad, my dad was brilliant in many ways, but he was certainly brilliant with handling me. It's like God gave him a gift to handle me. And I, I told him, I was about 19, I was like, Dad, I'm going to get a tattoo. And he goes, oh, okay. What are you going to get? Oh, I don't know. I'll pick it when I get there. And he goes, do you know how tattoos are, uh, are given? Oh, yeah I, I, yeah, I do. And he goes, okay. Is that sure that's what you really want to do? I said, well, yeah, that's what I really want to do. So my friends and I went down to this tattoo place in the city of Chicago. And when we got there, we were, <laughs> we were like little kids standing and looking through the window. And there was this big guy, I mean biker guy getting a tattoo. And his face was like, mm, mm, mm. and I'm like, I don't want a tattoo anymore. And we went and got pizza instead. You know, sometimes that moment of pause, my dad just asking that simple question, do you know how that's done? Well, yeah, I know how it's done. Sure I do. And I knew. They, they, they stuck needles and I was just hoping one, you know, with a little bit of water and you stick the paper on there, rub it and peel it off. You know, I'm so glad I didn't get a tattoo. Can you imagine me getting a tattoo at 18 and 19, say of Tweety Bird, because it, it was my wife's favorite cartoon character? That Tweety Bird now at 55 would look like Big Bird on my arm, okay? I'm so glad I didn't go there. But sometimes a moment of pause is needed, and God has given us all a moment of pause to ask the question, where do I stand with God today? And once we taste and know of God, we see that He is good, and that He loves us, and He is there for us. Notice with me, in Jeremiah 15, 16, when Jeremiah writes, he says of the Word of God, your words are found, were found, and I ate them, and your word was to me the joy of rejoicing of my heart. For I am called by your name, O God, Lord of hosts. Or when the psalmist wrote in Psalm 119, 103, he said, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey in my mouth. Now the believer can say that. But the unbeliever can't. And notice with me that as John digested, and that's what, he, that's what this means. He meditated upon, he digested, he appropriated God's word and saw the goodness of it. But then realized and discovered to get to Revelation 21, we have to go through Revelation 10 through 20. And that's going to be a very difficult period of time. And that's the period of time that God wants to spare you from. And you can be spared from this period of time coming up by accepting Christ as your Savior today. Warren Worsby once again wrote, he says, We enjoy the blessings of the Word of God, but we also must feel the burdens of the Word of God. 
John was blessed to know that God would fulfill his promises, he writes. But he felt bitterness as he realized the suffering that would take place during the next three and one half years of the tribulation. The famous pastor Chuck Swindoll wrote in his book, It is true that the gospel of Jesus Christ involves both bad news and good news. The bad news about the lost human subject to divine judgment, but the good news about the righteous Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who paid the complete penalty for us and saved us when we, were, uh, when we simply trust in Him. As an ambassador for Christ in this age, speaking of us, he's writing, we must not only understand and accept the gospel ourselves, but we also must uh, be able uh, to communicate the message to others. That's why here at Calvary this year, we're putting such an emphasis on inviting your friends and family, individuals who don't know the Lord, they are welcome to be here with us. We want them to hear this message. We want them to receive this message. And if you are here today and you don't know the Lord, you can leave here a brand new creation in Christ. Literally, brand new. The Bible says that the angels will rejoice in heaven when you do so. All you have to do is believe. That's all you have to do. And believe in what? Believe in Jesus Christ. That number one, he died for your sins. And then on the third day, he rose again, demonstrating that he can provide new life for you in him. I'll tell you, if you feel like you're missing something, may I tell you, what you're missing is Jesus. You can continue looking throughout this world for that missing piece that you think will satisfy you. I'm telling you that God has brought you here today to hear this that he is the missing piece and he is right here in front of you if you choose to receive him. Let's pray.